0: Father, we need spiritual light to see the chaos and crisis of our own hearts. We need light to see the the chaos and crisis of our own lives, our own families, our own church, our own community, our own region, our own world. We, We need spiritual light to see these things, Lord, and so we would ask that you would part the clouds of heaven and that you would direct light the light of heaven right down to 1760 Friendship Road in Oxford, Alabama right now in this moment, that we might be able to see our own hearts, to see our own lives, to see our own context in such a way that we can know how to respond in faith, knowing who you are, knowing who who we are and who we belong to, namely you and your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Make no mistake about it. God is in the process of building His kingdom. When it comes to full completion and full fruition, it will be an exquisitely beautiful and astonishingly excellent glorious kingdom. There will be no sin, no darkness, no sorrow, no pain, no idolatry. It will be full of obedience and light and satisfaction and pleasure and worship. It will be a kingdom like no other kingdom. It will be sweet and beautiful and fresh and fun and adventurous and intense and exhilarating and reverent and holy all at the very same time. Thank you, Chris. Think about the kingdom of God and all its glory for a moment. Think about the glory of Christ and the multitudes of worshipers from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Think about the purity of life and the sound of music as we all gather around the throne and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Think about the amazing heights that we will climb and the sights that we will see in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about the brightness and the beauty that emanate from the Son of God forever and ever and ever. It will be an experience of infinite celebration of the King of Kings. But that will be then. And this is now. Right now, God is in the process of building His kingdom. But instead of there being perfect purity and an unending perfection, there is an ongoing experience of what, church? Chaos and crisis. Exactly. And it's all the time. And it's not just that way for this generation. It's been this way ever since Adam and Eve decided to walk away from the glory of God and the goodness of God when they were in the garden. When God put everything into motion and created all that is, life on earth was perfect. There was peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and the kingdom of God was a thing of beauty. But when temptation came, so did rebellion. And with rebellion came chaos and crisis. It's been a mixed bag ever since of beauty and ugliness, sweetness and bitterness, success and suffering. Now, we have to understand, though, that in the midst of the ugliness, and in the midst of the bitterness, in the midst of the suffering, God is still building His kingdom. Thank you for your testimony, Joanna, specifically. We must know that, we must see it, and we must believe it. In the midst of all the crises, we must not run from God, we must run to Him. We must run to His beloved Son and anointed King, Jesus Christ. And at His throne, we will find the skill to live in this present chaotic life in such a way that brings Him glory. And I believe that's what the Lord wants to teach us. That's what the Lord wants to hammer home to us. That He is building His kingdom and that we need to trust Him, worship Him, and serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if that sounded familiar to you, it's because that was my introduction to Samuel ten months ago. 55 chapters ago. 1,501 verses ago. For the better part of 40 weeks, we walked through First and 2 Samuel. And last Sunday, we finished our journey. And it was an epic story. And it was an epic journey. And I just want to make a confession. I told Phil Monday, and I told Jamie yesterday, that this has been the most impactful series on my life and inside my heart that I've ever experienced in 40 years of living. Whether I was sitting in a pew or standing up behind a pulpit. Because God has revealed some deeply troubling things about my own heart and about my own life. And at the very same time, He has revealed to me some some profoundly beautiful things about Himself And about his plan to build his kingdom in the midst of my ugliness and in the midst of my difficulties and ours together as a a congregation. And I praise him for that. Now, through the journey, I have become more convinced than ever that God is building his kingdom that he's building it through chaos and crisis, and, and he's doing it through our broken hearts and our troubled lives and our complex family situations. He is doing it through the unity of our local church body, which is mere and small, and yet he's doing it. He's building his kingdom through us. And He's building His kingdom through the unity that we share with our sister churches. He's doing it through the partnerships that we have with Christians all over the world, whether it be in South Africa or whether it's to every tribe that are reaching unreached people groups. He's building His kingdom through all of these things. And I'm even also convinced that God is building His kingdom in spite of the empty religiosity of our Bible Belt culture. He's building it in spite of the the me-centered narcissism of our... Overall, I don't know if you call it a pop culture or what, but he's doing it in spite of the self-glory-seeking nature of our presidential culture. He's doing it in spite of the the, the narcissistic, self-righteous perspective of our political culture. He's building his kingdom through all of these things and in spite of all of these things. And I've never been more convinced of that than I am this very day. And so before we move on to the next text, and before we move on to the next series, I think I would be making a mistake if we didn't just park today and come to grips with the realities of how God wants to build His kingdom today. And... And I'm going to do it in an interesting way. I told Jamie late last night, I said, there is a reason why I read the text, explain the text, apply the text, and then come back the next Sunday and pick up right where I left off. Because doing what I'm about to do is a little more difficult. It's a little more challenging. Um, and, and, and I think the consecutive preaching of scriptures is where God normally wor- works uh, powerfully in the midst of his people. But today we're going to look at the Bible. Uh, Like the whole thing. Um, Okay, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take a survey of kingdom theology. A survey of kingdom theology, and we want to ask the question, we want to ask the question, what does this text say about the kingdom? Because if if you want to know what my heartbeat has been this week and what it is right now, it is this. I want us to connect with the kingdom. Like, let me ask you a question right now. How often did you think about the kingdom of God this week? How often did the words, the kingdom of God, roll off your tongue? How, how often did you speak about the kingdom of God to people this week? How often? More often than we <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> uh, Confidence building answer right there. I love it. I love it, Trina. Trina. See, that's, that's where I want us to be. I want us to be, get this, a kingdom people. I want us to think about the kingdom. I want us to yearn for the kingdom. I want us to, to not be ashamed of the kingdom. And I, I and also don't want us to be embarrassed to use kingdom language because people who use who have bad theology use kingdom language more than we do. I think we need to g- take grasp of and hold of the kingdom the way that Christ has called us to. We need to be a kingdom people. And so I just want to look at some text from kind of every genre of scripture, but specifically in the New Testament today, and just ask questions, what does this text tell us about the kingdom? Alright, so th- th- this will be a little different, but hopefully God will use it in, in a great way in our hearts and in our lives. Okay, so, so let's, let's go ahead and call up our first text, which is in Exodus. Wanted to get something from the Torah, and so I looked at Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. He's carried them through the the sea. He has destroyed their enemies. They are at Mount Sinai. He's revealing himself to Moses and he's calling the people of Israel to something great. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's just giving them a picture saying, I brought you like a glorious majestic eagle out of the depravity, out of the bondage and slavery in which you're in and I brought you to this glorious place where you're at right now at the foot of this mountain where I'm beholding my glory. And he says, Now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And check this. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Phil, I'm going to pick on you first. You keep your eyes up there on that text. The Lord rescued Israel from bondage in Egypt so that they would be what? What would they be? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yes. A kingdom. Like God has had it central in His mind and on His heart that He wants a people for Himself that are His kingdom. And it's not just any kingdom. He says, I want you to be a kingdom of what, Phil? Of priests. You know what priests do? Priests bring the burdens of the people and draw near to God. Priest take the blessings of God and draw near to the people so that there's a constant flow between the people and God and from God to the people. And he's saying, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want every one of you to be drawing near to God with your burdens and then near to one another with my blessings. I want you to be that kind of kingdom. Now, now, Phil, one more question for you. To whom, to whom does he want to build this kingdom? Verse 6. To me. Yes. Yes. No, it's good. This is good. To me. This is not like a, 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 a kingdom that it seems like the United States of America is trying to build right now. This is not an independent, autonomous, self-glory-seeking kingdom. This is not about how great we are going to be. This is a kingdom to demonstrate how great and glorious and beautiful who is. God is. The King is. Exactly. And so that, this passage shows us that God is building a kingdom. He wants a kingdom and wants it to be a kingdom of priests who draw near to Him and draw near to one another for His glory. Okay, let's go to the the passage that was front and center in our series over the last ten months. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. The Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, that is, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so the Lord will establish the kingdom through whom? David's offspring. All right, exactly. And so, Jeremy, let me ask you how long will the kingdom of David's offspring last? It'll last forever, there will be no end to it. That's exactly right. And and by our interpretation, Jeremy, as we looked at at 2 Samuel 7, as we've looked at this the entire book of Samuel, who, who is David's offspring that he's pushing us to? Jesus Christ. It's exactly right. And so Christ will reign on the throne of David forever, and the kingdom of priests will be around him, drawing near to him and drawing near to one another. Let's look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is a famous passage. That's why I chose it from the prophets because most all of us know this passage. But I want you to, everyone, look at the text in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. The Lord reveals this to Isaiah, prophesying hundreds of years before Christ ever comes. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called, catch it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So let me ask, Mark, what are the titles of the king? In his kingdom. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Okay, let, let me put you on the spot here, Mark. Wonderful counselor. What is that? What is, do we think of kings being counselors? No. We really don't. But this king is a counselor. What comes to your mind with that? Someone who has wisdom and can allow us to live life skillfully? Yes. Yes. And then he calls him mighty God at the same time. And so he's he's going to live life with you. He's going to give you skill. But what what also is he going to do? He's going to rule. He's going to reign. Exactly. That's the kind of king that he is. And, And not only that, he's an everlasting father. His reign will never end. And he comes to us and loves us as a daddy. And he brings peace to us. And so the next question, Mark, how will he uphold this kingdom? How will he uphold this kingdom? Yeah, it's not it's not arbitrary authoritarianism. This king in his kingdom will uphold it with righteousness, that is equity, with fairness, with what is absolutely right and correct and righteous and good and pure. This is the kind of kingdom that the king ushers in and that he rules and reigns over. All right. So now let's look to the New Testament. We we'll look seven hundred years later as we begin to see the King bring in the kingdom. Matthew four verse seventeen, Jesus, Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Now I have I have a question. How could Jesus say that the kingdom? is at hand. How could he say that the kingdom is at hand? Chris, would you have an answer to that? How's the kingdom at hand? Because for, the, for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. King, exactly. Here. Exactly. The king is here. That's why the kingdom's at hand, is because the king has come. Get it? And so, and so he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so because the kingdom is at hand, what should people do? Repent. Repent is to turn your back and your life on sin. Just, just turn your back on sin and turn your face toward Jesus Christ. And when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying turn our face and our hearts toward the King because He's here. The reason that He can say boldly, repent, is because I'm the King, He says. And if if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to be a citizen in the kingdom, you've got to turn your back on what I hate and turn your face toward what I love, which is namely the glory of God. So come to me. So when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he's saying, come in repentance. Turn, turn your back on sin and come to me because I'm the king in glory. Matthew 5, 3 and 10. These are the Beatitudes. And listen, he says, Blessed blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, blessed are the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I have a question. Who does the blessing of the kingdom belong to? David Cobb. Who does the blessing of the kingdom belong to? Yes, the poor in spirit and those who, who are persecuted for righteousness. And so, if you want to be in the kingdom... If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom, the very first thing that you must do is you must die to yourself, die to to all that you want to be for your own glory and say, this is not about mine. This is about His. I bow before Him. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my brokenness. I acknowledge my desperation. I acknowledge my neediness. And I bow before the King because I realize this is about His kingdom and not my own. And then He says, if you do that, if you do that, you will be what? Blessed. Happy. He's teaching us truths about the kingdom that we absolutely must know. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and also verse 34. Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. All right? Church, what should we pray for? For his kingdom to come. Now, now I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to bring conviction, but how many of us this, mo- this week prayed that God's kingdom would come? How many of us explicitly prayed, God, bring your kingdom? Now, if, if we did, praise God. And if we earnestly wanted it, praise God. But this is the thing, is, is that we get so wrapped up in the brokenness and the chaos and the crisis of our lives that we forget about the kingdom. And Jesus says that when you pray, as often as you pray, pray that what? His kingdom will come. And then verse 34, He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so they're worried about what they're going to eat. They're worried about what they're going to drink. They're worried about the clothes that they're going to wear. They're they're worried about the necessities of life, just like me and you. We're all worried about the necessities of life. We are, and we should be. But Jesus says, before you get concerned about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat, there's one thing that you need to be concerned about before any of that stuff. And what is that? The kingdom. The kingdom! Seek first the kingdom! And then all these things will be added unto you. And we get it, we get it backwards. Well, we, we make sure that we, we have everything that we need to eat, everything that we need to wear, all the provisions of life. And then once we get those ducks in a row and everything squared away, then we say, hey, you know what? Why don't we stop and pray for a few minutes about the kingdom? He says, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these will be added to you. Matthew chapter 9 Jesus went throughout all the cities, all the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the what? The kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. That's what he proclaimed. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, Jesus didn't come. This is very important. This is theological, but it is absolutely real. There hadn't been all this time about kingdom building and and the the Samuel Corpus and the kings and the chronicles and all of the prophets talking about the kingdom. And then Jesus didn't come and say, hey, you know, all that kingdom language that was used in the Old Testament, all that's kind of faded away. And now it's all just about your own personal relationship with a personal Savior so that you can live a little better life than what you're currently living, so that you can live on a little higher plane than what you're currently living. That wasn't the message that he came to say. Yeah. He preached the message of the gospel of the. what? The kingdom of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that in Jesus Christ, God's power and God's rule and God's reign is breaking into human history, and he's flipping the script. This is a heavenly, powerful, glorious kingdom, and we can see its face in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying when he's saying that he preached the gospel of the kingdom to every city and every village. Uh, Mark 9, he gets serious. He says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes. To be thrown into hell. How serious? If if we're listening to Jesus, like if we want to know what Jesus has to say, and how how serious is Jesus about entering the kingdom? Yeah, that's right. I like the facial expression, Carolyn. He's deadly serious. He's deadly serious. He's kill sin serious. That's how serious He is. Like I, I don't think that I can butter up Christ's words to make them soft. He's saying if you want to enter the kingdom, and he's saying entering the kingdom is the most important thing that there is. If you want to enter the kingdom, then you do whatever you have to do to kill sin in your life. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mark 10, verse 15, he says, Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And so this is the question. How do you get to be in the kingdom? How do you get to be in the kingdom? Well, according to Jesus, you don't earn it. You don't work for it. You definitely don't deserve it. You receive it. You receive it. It comes to you and you accept it. The message of the kingdom of God in the person of Christ comes to you and you say, I believe that. I will stake my life on that. I receive that message. And then Jesus says, well, then you have it. You've got the kingdom. You receive it. Now, Luke 9. Another said, I will follow you, Lord. I will. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So I want to ask you all this. Where should the kingdom of God be on your priority list? Let's, let's just take an evaluation. Let's take an evaluation. Jesus is saying that if you receive the kingdom, what you have, if you want to be in the kingdom, all you have to do is receive it. But to receive it, it has to be number one in your life. Nothing comes above the kingdom of God. Nothing. But if it's number one, it belongs to you. Okay, so in Luke 12, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What does it say about the kingdom? It says that the kingdom is a good gift from a good father. And he's not trying to hide the kingdom from you. He's not moving the capital of the kingdom from one city to the next city so that when you get to the previous city, you're like, oh, where did the kingdom go? Oh, no, it must be over there. I'm going to go find the kingdom. No, it is the father's good pleasure to bring the kingdom right to your doorstep and says, if you want it, here it is. Now, how loving is that? How gracious is that? That is... It's amazing grace. So in John 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so the question here is, what do you have to experience To enter the kingdom of God. The new birth. The new birth. You have to be born again. there, There is an old self that was born. And in that old self, you are depraved. And by depraved, that means that you have the rottenness of sin that not only corrupts your heart, it is the very nature of your heart. You are about yourself. You are about um, everything that is, um, rebellious against God and and has a great allegiance to yourself. And what he's saying is that old self has to die and a new self has to be born. And when that new self is born, what happens is, is the Holy Spirit comes in and takes out that old heart and removes it and puts in a brand new heart and that brand new heart beats for the glory of the kingdom of God. And this is the thing, is that God does that work. That's how you're born again. He does it. The Spirit comes in and He says, I am going to do heart surgery on this person so that they won't be a better version of themselves, but they will be a new person. And they will experience a new desire and a new life and a new outlook for the rest of their lives. And that's what you have to experience if you want to be in the kingdom. You must be born again. Now in John 18, he's before Pilate. Pilate is about to send Him to the cross. And he's, Pilate is confronting Jesus, and Jesus finally responds, and He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. You know, like your servants fight, Pilate. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But, My kingdom is not from the world. And so if you just keep your eyes on that text, I ask the question, what does this say about the kingdom? It says that Jesus' kingdom is not rooted in this world. It is not confined to this world, and it is most certainly not like this world. It transcends this world, and as a matter of fact, it reigns supreme over it. And so Jesus goes to the cross and He dies. And people who um, were skeptical about Christ but mesmerized by Him, they dismiss whatever kingship that He promised to bring in. He said He was a king. and He he can't even get Himself off of a cross. He said He was royalty and that He was ushering in the kingdom. Man, we we dismissed Him in a matter of hours. Forget about that guy. But on the third day, he demonstrates his royalty. He demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his supremacy over all the kings of the world by doing what? By rising from the dead. (laughs) And you know what he did? We don't have it recorded, but he could have said, the king is back. The king (laughs) is back. And and so he begins to reveal himself to his disciples. And they were doubting, and they were struggling, and they were grieving. And in Acts chapter 1, the kingdom is on their mind. And look at verse 6. So when they, when the disciples had come together, they asked Him, Lord, so will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, we really thought you were going to restore it like three or four specific times when we were walking with you, when we were following you. Remember that time we were just outside of Jerusalem and we we literally thought you were going to go into Jerusalem and you were going to make all things right and then you flipped the script on us again. And then we had all the crowd singing Hosanna in the highest and you come in on a donkey and all of a sudden you just go back to Bethany that day. Like, we really thought you were going to usher the kingdom in that day. But now that you're risen from the dead, surely... This is the time that you're going to usher the kingdom, right? Right, right. And let's let's look how Jesus answers it. He said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So they're worried about the consummation of the kingdom of God. And let me ask you, what does Jesus specifically say about the kingdom of God in his answer? <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, that's, that's the transliteration of it. Um, yes, he's like, don't worry about the consummation of the kingdom, worry about bringing people into the kingdom. I do think we just need to stop for a moment. And while we're praying for God's kingdom to come, and while we're seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, and as we're getting dead serious about our sins so that we can enter the kingdom of God, at the very same time, we must be about the exact thing that He says here. We must tell as many people as we possibly can about the kingdom. Because there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day when that possibility is over. And all the people will be gathered in. And those who aren't in will be out. And they will suffer and they will perish in hell outside the kingdom. And he's saying, go and tell people about my kingdom. So in Acts 8, that's exactly what the apostles do. When they believed, that is, when the group of people who were listening to the message of the kingdom, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. What does it say about the kingdom? It says that the apostles went and preached the kingdom, and more people came into the kingdom, and one of them was Philip, and Philip then goes and preaches the gospel, and people become citizens of the kingdom all throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. And we see it very specifically, church, and I want you to look at this closely, Acts 14. Acts 14, Paul is doing his ministry. He's been brought into the kingdom through faith. And it says that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Let's, let's, just get a, let's get a picture of that. Paul preaches the kingdom. And they hate his message because it includes Jesus Christ. They hate his message so much that they stone him. They throw rocks at him. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's how, that's how violent it was. They thought they'd killed him. But when the disciples gathered around Paul, Paul rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas and Dur- to Derb. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is how central the kingdom of God was to the Apostle Paul. He was stoned almost to death. He was dragged out of town and he got up. He dusted himself off and the next place that he went, he preached the kingdom of God. And then he said, through many tribulations, we also will enter the kingdom of God. This is why, church, I can stand up in front of you with all boldness and say, if the kingdom of God is not central in your life and your heart, then you and I, if the same is true for me, we have a problem. The kingdom of God must be central to our lives and to our hearts. Paul preached it. And then Acts 28, at the very end of the book of Acts, Paul lived in Rome for two whole years at his own expense. He's been questioned. He's been imprisoned. um, And so he welcomed all who came to him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance the kingdom of god and the reign of jesus christ was the theme of the apostle paul's ministry from beginning to end it was his theme now i have two more texts for us first corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11 paul then writes to the church at corinth and he says Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed... You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. Alright, so let's ask two questions here. Joey, you've got a loud voice. You're looking at the text. Joey, who does not inherit the kingdom of God? Sexually immoral? Idolaters? Adulterers and the like. That's exactly right. Now, this is what I want to say. If you're an adult, you've been sexually immoral. If you're breathing, you've been an idolater. If you're sexually immoral, if you're unrighteous, if you're an idolater, you don't inherit the kingdom of God. And so I want to ask the question who does? According to the text, who inherits the kingdom of God, Joey? Those are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly. You see, see, we can say that we're in the kingdom of God. Not because we haven't been sexually immoral. Not because we haven't been idolatrous. Not because we haven't practiced all forms of wickedness. We can say that we're in the kingdom of God because we've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been renewed. We've been born again. Just like Jesus told us we had to be. Amen. Yeah. And I put this text in here, church, because if, if Redeemer Church is marked by one thing, I don't want it to be self-righteousness about the kingdom of God. You know what we are. We were beggars who found food because the King was willing to come and bring it to us. We've earned nothing. We've deserved nothing. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. And then let's look at Colossians 1. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so if I ask the question, what are the blessings of being in the kingdom? The blessings of being in the kingdom are redemption. Guys, it's being transferred from all of the stuff that we talked about. The power of our sin. The pollution of our sin. The the penalty of our sin, which is hell. And it's delivering us all the way over into the promise of Christ's righteousness. The promise of Christ's resurrection. The promise of Christ's resurrection power. So that we can know Him and feel Him and experience His kingly rule in our own hearts. That's what we've been delivered to by the Father through Jesus Christ. It's called resurrection redemption, and we have it through being born again to His kingdom. And so, so when we think about kingdom, and we think about the, the heartbeat of God about His kingdom, let's go ahead and put up the big idea. The kingdom of God is the eternal and sovereign reign of Jesus Christ over everything. But I have a comma here. Because I want us to see what comes after the comma. The kingdom of God is the eternal and sovereign reign of Jesus Christ over the entire universe in which God's mission to save sinners finds its glorious and ultimate fulfillment. And why is that important? Why why, why did I put the comma and add that whole thing? Because the first part, yes, it is true. But when we read about the kingdom... From Genesis all the way to Revelation, while it states very clearly that Christ is the sovereign ruler and reigner as king over every single molecule that possibly ever could, ever exist, He does it all to save a people who were unsavable to rescue a people who were irredeemable and to put them up on, as it were, a pedestal and say for all eternity, these are all trophies of my grace. Now, you you understand that. See, See, because it's not just about sovereignty. It's not just about universal rule. It's about saving a people for Himself that forever and ever they might be able to say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so King Jesus King Jesus will ultimately and finally defeat all evil personalities and powers. He will put an end to all chaos and crisis. He will exercise justice for everyone and be worshipped forever as king of kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah. That, that, that's the more personal description of the kingdom, the king in his eternal kingdom. Okay, so I've got about uh, 10 minutes or so for, to go the length that I normally go in preaching. And so I want to take the 10 because this is what I want to do. I, I, I sent our shepherds a text message this weekend. And this is the text that, I, that I, I wrote them. I said, as a shepherd of Redeemer Church, would you meditate on where we are and what we're dealing with today and send me a list of the most significant aspects of chaos and crisis that we experience at Redeemer Church. And so they did. They sent me a list, every one of them. And it was all across the board. And I will tell you, as I meditated on what the shepherds came back to me with, I would just say this, is that your shepherds love you. Your shepherds care for you. Your shepherds pray for you. And they want to see Christ's kingdom rule in your heart, in your life, and in your family to the glory of King Jesus. Amen. You need to know that. Yeah. So I will give as many as I can in about 8 or 10 minutes. and I want, th- This would be the application part of the sermon. I just want you to think. I want you to meditate on the crisis and chaos here, okay? So... The first crisis and chaos that God is building His His kingdom through is our passions. Our passions. What does that mean? What are we passionate about? What do we long for? What do we wake up in the morning excited about? Thrilled for? Can't wait to get to. Can't wait to participate in. Can't wait to, to, to be completely involved in. That's our passions, right? right. right. And so this, this is what we have. We have a temptation toward worldly passions. Yeah. We have a temptation toward trivial passions. Like, in some ways, we don't really look any different from the world. In other words, we're greedy for money, we're greedy for sex, we're greedy for power, we're gr- greedy for safety. We're greedy for being successful in our fantasy football league. We're greedy for the new Xbox. We're greedy for um, having success in some trivial pursuit. We're greedy about those things. That, like, that's really what gets us going. Like, that fires us up. If I, can, if I can have success over here, or if I can add another $1,000 in my account here, or if I can get be the center of attention with these group of people. Like we, Those are our passions some, sometimes. And your shepherds would say, we need to to make sure that we are doing the ongoing work of transferring our worldly passions, leaving them behind, and transferring over into godly passions. Passions for the glory of God. Holy passions. Like... That our desires and our longings would be to see the righteousness of God be manifested in our hearts, in our lives, and in our families. That the love of God, that is the sacrificial pursuit of another's highest good, would be the mark of our families, the mark of our lives. That service and work for the glory of God and the kingdom of God would be central in what we're trying to do. What we want to do is we want to dismiss passions for trivial things as much as we can in order to have passions for eternal things. It's been said often, and rightfully so, that there are only two things that are eternal that will stand. It is the Word of God and the souls of men. And so, should we not be passionate about the Word of God and the souls of men? And if we are more passionate... If we're more passionate about other things, while they may be good and fine and not sinful, if we're more passionate about them than we are about the Word of God and the souls of men, then all of these things become sinful because we have placed them not first. uh, We've placed them first rather than the kingdom of God. Second, our satisfactions. Our satisfactions. Very similar but we, we, as a church, in the midst of, of, of the chaos and crisis of our hearts and lives and culture, we can fall into a self-centered security. We find our security and our satisfaction primarily and sometimes only in our success, our job, our family, our children's prosperity, our grandchildren's prosperity. All of that kind of works itself in to be central in our heart and then what happens is is we'll go to church on Sunday or we'll go to a Christian event and we're like, we got we got Christ as well and maybe He can even bless all this stuff that's central to us like my kids and my grandkids and my job and my pursuits and like that would be really good. I've got these things, they give me security and then on top of it I can have like a 401k with the kingdom of God. It's not where it's at. Because Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and His ra- righteousness. The third is it's, a, it's our worship. It's our worship. Like we, we, have a, we have an inclination in the midst of chaos and crisis to have self-centered idolatry, but we'll put, Christian, we'll put the Christian banner over it. But what we need is a Christ-centered awe. When Jamie and I were out in California, we went to a couples retreat one time. It has to be one of the prettiest locations in the world. I can't remember the name of it or I would recall it. But a couple, while we were at this couples retreat, took us out to a, a very nice restaurant. It was a seafood restaurant that sat on top of a cliff. And it had glass windows all around it. And it overlooked the cliff into the Pacific Ocean as the waves crashed in onto the rocks and onto the cliffs. And you could see the sun going down as, you know, as dinner is served. It, it was probably the most amazing sight and probably the most romantic uh, scene that you could, could have. This is, what, this is what we reduce our Christianity down to when the waiter comes and asks you you know, what what do you want this evening for your meal, and we say, oh, I want this, I want that, that that looks good, please give me that. We reduce the kingdom of God to Jesus Christ being our waiter. Our waiter. Oh, today I'll take this, God. Oh, today I think, oh, that sounds good. I think I'd like to have a little bit of that in my life. And in reality... What we need to understand is we need to look out that glass and we need to see that Jesus Christ and His kingdom is that scene. And we are only privileged to be able to look at it and to stand in awe of it and to be mesmerized by everything that we see and the beauty that actually we feel inside of us. Yeah. Understand? Awe. Yeah. Awe. Oh. 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 I want to give you two more. Our faith. Our faith. Our faith in the midst of crisis and chaos, we we are bent toward or could incline ourselves toward self-centered passivity about what we're believing about Christ, what we're trusting Christ for. It's it's like um, what we would say is we have a cognitive understanding that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived perfectly, died sacrificially, rose powerfully, ascended into heaven, and will one day come and reign. And we all would say, Amen, glory to God. We know it in our minds. But there is a chasm that exists in what we know in our minds and what we stake our lives on every single day and how we shape our lives and what we do inside of the hours that we have and the minutes that we have and the seconds that we have with our friends and with our family members and with our church members. And so we, we need to rest on Christ. We need to put our faith in Christ. We need to trust Christ. And it's just like Phil exposed last Sunday. We need to risk everything for this King. And if we're not risking for this King, can we even say that we're resting in Him and having reverence for Him? Okay, the last one is our walk. Our walk. The chaos The crisis of our daily walk with God, our daily life with God, our daily grind as we we work and labor and toil for His glory. And so this is what we have an inclination to. We have an inclination toward self-centered folly. It's, It's just like we want what we want, and because we don't have a kingdom mindset, then we just pursue what we want. And we spend money on things we shouldn't spend money on. And we invest time on things that we shouldn't invest time on. We we invest resources and relationships in ways that we should not do it. Why? Because we're fools. Because we know all of the truths about the kingdom of God, but when it comes to actually living it out, we put the truths aside and we just let the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of our life take control. And so we need Christ-centered wisdom. And so this is what I want to say is, is this evening, when you go home, after Reformation celebration, of course, but this evening when you go home and you're beginning to look at your week, you don't need to ask the question, what's going to feel good to me this week? What's going to be the most comfortable thing for us and our family? This is the question that we need to ask what's best for the kingdom of god this week now church i'm serious about that because this sermon would be in vain if you don't start asking the question what is best for the kingdom of god yeah, yeah. i've got good news bad news i had a whole bunch more that i wanted to tell you this morning <laughs> <laughs> That's either good or bad for you. Um, (laughs) You you apply it. But I'll reserve it for the roundup or something like that. Time is upon us. So why don't you bow your heads, Phil, and you come up and lead us the rest of the way.